also is God's concern for us, our eternal safety. Two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 8, 29-30, which I entitled, The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. just goes right there through being foreknown, to being predestined, to being called, to being justified, to being glorified. That's God's salvation pipeline. That, that God will bring us safely into eternity. That those before the foundation of the world who He chose is elect, he, those He foreknew, these are the ones He predestined. And the ones He predestined are the ones He called. The ones He called are the ones He justified. And the ones He justified are the ones He glorified. And these are links on a chain that cannot be broken. And we are as secure in this process as any president has ever been. Listen to the promise of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. My message this morning is entitled, The Secure, work, secure in the Work of Christ. It comes from Romans 8, 31-34. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles. Open them to Romans 8. It's helpful for you to look on. So you see I'm not making this stuff up, but it is right here in our, in our text. If you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to take one from the pew. Uh, turn to page 944. I want to read our passage. Romans 8, 31-34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, one of the first things you notice in these verses are the number of questions. Four verses, Paul asks five questions. There are question marks right there. I just highlighted them for you. Five questions in four verses. He, and in some regards, he's being like the, the prosecuting attorney who's asking of a defendant these questions leading to a conclusion is where he's going with all these things. The first question is, is very open-ended. Many answers to that question. The second, the other questions are all rhetorical. Meaning there's just one answer, a simple answer, that then is leading us someplace. And it's all guiding us to the, the security that we have in the work of Christ. My, my message this morning, I'll have five points, one for each question. And each of my points is going to be a summary of each of these questions because an outline that's the whole text doesn't really make a lot of sense. But here's, here's my first one, Romans um, 8.31a. What shall we say? Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? One commentator calls this question, the great, so what? In light of everything he said, he says, so what? Now, what's interesting, before, before we go on, you really need to ask, okay, so what, what do these things talk about? If you look at verse 31, it says, what then shall we say to these things? And so what's that talking about? Well, I think in some regard it means through the immediate things that we just talked about. The, the unbreakable chain of salvation in, in 29 and in verse 30. What, what should we say to that? What should we say? Or, or even it extends back further even to 28. 
causing all things to work together for good. So what shall we say to that? But you've you got to realize that all those are within the context of an argument. They, they are culminating this argument in chapter 8 of our security. Which actually is the culmination of everything that, that we have begun from chapter 1. And so the Cranfield, the commentator, says exactly right. He says, these things may be understood referring primarily to the content of 29 through 30. But in view of the nature of verses 32 through 34, because they refer a lot to previous chapters, the reference should not be restricted to the immediate preceding verses. Verses 31 through 39 may just be regarded as the conclusion not only to chapter 8, but also of the whole argument of the epistle so far. And I think that's, that's really true. It's a little bit like a final exam in math, right? When you take a final exam, if someone says, is this exam comprehensive? And a final exam in math is always comprehensive with a particular emphasis, though, on what was recently covered the past few weeks. And so likewise here, these things are, are emphasized here on what we have just discovered the last couple of weeks. But it is, it is leading up. And this is a good chance for us to pause and reflect again the message of Romans. So we think about a review, like, like what's, what's he talking about? How's, how's he leading this up? And Paul begins Romans chapter 1 with a discussion of our sin and the results of our sin. And our sin is bad and the results are worse. Rather than submitting ourselves to the righteous truth of God, we have chosen to go our own way. And Paul says in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And because none of us are good, God's wrath is upon us. It's upon us all. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we know the truth and we suppress the truth and thereby we are under the wrath of God. And but by the grace of God, we would all be doomed. Here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel means good news that God has shown us grace in Jesus Christ. Romans three twenty three. Look, look there. Right? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are nevertheless yet we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And though we are sinners, we believe in God and trust in God what he has done through his son. He reconciles us to, to himself and he, he regards our faith as righteousness and he considers us righteous, even though we are. Because we believe in God, our faith he reckons to us as righteousness. That's a great message of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5 is a great summary verse. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's an accounting term. And faith goes in the ledger as a, as a credit. And its righteousness is that we, we get and because we're counted righteous and because we have a union with Christ, we have new desires. And Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and 7. We have desires to walk in obedience to the Lord. That is evident of every believer. Every believer will have desires to walk in the way of the Lord. And where are there no desires, there's no faith in Christ. But 6 through 7 talk about our sanctification. And, and 7 is very real, talking about our, our struggle in sanctification. But Paul, you see, he wants to do what is right. 
but it's his flesh that is pulling him down and, and dragging him down. And, and yet, even though we struggle in our lives to be everything that we want to be, chapter 8 comes and says that we are secure in God. Is that it's not that a tit for tat, like, oh, God doesn't say, well, you're okay. You're, oh, no, no, you're not okay. No, we are secure in God. Our sins are wiped away. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says, all of our sins have been forgiven. And chapter 8 begins with this great verse. We've mentioned it many times in recent weeks. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that we can live without the threat of God's judgment hanging over us all the time. We don't have to worry about the the condemnation of God. We can live secure. And that's really the idea of verses 31 through 34 that, that Paul focuses upon the whole work of Christ and to demonstrate how secure we can be in God through Christ. Next week, by the way, we'll look at not secure in the work of Christ, but secure in the love of Christ. Look, look there, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one's going to separate us from the love of Christ. And, and that's how he ends in verse 38, 39. This is the, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next week, secure in the love of Christ. This week, secure in the work of Christ. So what should we say? We should say all of that. There's lots to say. Second question, who's against us? That's what verse 31 says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, there's an if part of that and there's a a then part of that. Is God for us? I mean, Romans is all about God being for us, right? That that we were dead in our sins, right? That, That we were sinful under his wrath. But what has he done? He's so for us that he sent his son He's so for us that he he takes our faith and reckons it to us as righteousness. He's so for us that he gives us righteous desires. He's so for us that he doesn't condemn us. But rather, he brings us in as a fellow heir with Christ. We are a joint heir with Jesus. So if God is for us and Romans teaches of everything, the good news is that God is for us. Who can be against us? And the answer is. Tell me, nobody, nobody. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Now, people may try. Like, people try to combat the Secret Service from time to time. I was talking with my wife uh, on, on the way to church, talking to her about I'm going to share about the Secret Service. And, and it's just it's interesting that, you know, by and large, they do a very good job. You know, presidents aren't assassinated. I think about the most recent attempt, um, Ronald Reagan, maybe. With John Hinckley Jr., John Hinckley Bill Jr., I forget his name, Hinckley Jr., you know, there was a breach, um, but that's one breach in 37 years. That's pretty good. Um, I just think they do a good job. But people can try, and I just say this, that some may get through. I'm not being prophetic at all, but I'm just saying that... Uh, you know, the Secret Service does. It's a human thing. But with God, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. People can try, but God will be able to thwart anybody. Even reflecting today as we're, we're singing. Um, it's just about Satan. Satan is totally under the hands of God and control of God. When, when Satan comes to inflict Job, God gives him permission. He gives him boundaries. Um, and by the way, it was God's instigation in that whole process anyway. He said, hey, look at Job. 
And then it was like, oh, yeah, well, let me get at him. He said, no, don't touch his flesh. Or, or, or when uh, Satan was going after Peter, Satan asked permission. Satan is a, a servant of the Lord. People can try, but God is on our side. We have nothing to fear. With God on our side, the victory is ours. Now, that doesn't mean that our life is free of trials. That doesn't mean that we won't suffer. Even Paul is acknowledging suffering in Romans chapter 18, verse 18 he, he, through 25. He, he acknowledges how suffering is real, how we groan in this fallen creation and how, how it hurts and there is agony. But, but remember, really, Paul is talking about our ultimate security, our ultimate confidence, our ultimate fact that those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. He's talking about that whole chain. He's going to bring us to final salvation. We are safe in the arms of God. Every man is immortal until the day that God determines will be his last. You realize that? If God is not determined today to be your last, you are immortal today because God is for you. And nobody can be against you. And regarding the suffering, what Paul simply says this, he just compares it with the glory that's revealed to us. Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, this is the glory that is to be revealed to us, that is sure that we are sure to experience, right? And why are we sure to experience it? Because we are secure in the work of Christ for all eternity, which really the next three verses are talking about. Verse 32 speaks about how God will give us everything we need to arrive in glory. Verse 33 says no one can bring a charge against us. 34 says that no one can condemn us. So let's see how God is for us. Look at verse 32. It's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, by the way. Verse 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the answer to that question? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's kind of hard to answer exactly, but it is a it is a question that's there that says, of course, he will give us all things. If God gave us the greatest gift, which is a son, why would he not then give us lesser gifts? Here's how I sought to summarize that question. How will he not graciously give? Just kind of taking out, kind of taking out some stuff, but won't God graciously give to us because he's given to us of his son? So let's think about his greatest gift. He gave his son It was his only son. It was a son whom he loved. And God sent him to die on the cross for our sins. You remember in Romans chapter 1 that Paul spoke how the wrath of God was upon us. And it was in sending his son that solved that, that wrath problem. See, when Jesus died, he bore the wrath that we deserved. As one commentator said, he drank the cup of unspeakable agony to the very last drop. See, this is the agony of Jesus, is the wrath of God, not so much the cross, not so much the physical suffering, but the wrath of God that he would absorb on our behalf, the abandonment of his heavenly father. When he was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one and only time in all eternity that ever father forsook the son was to deal with us and our sin 
so he could bring us to himself. The hymn writer says this, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead. Didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. So in other words, there, there was this cup of the wrath of God that we deserve to drink. But Jesus takes our cup. He drinks every last drop of the wrath of God. And then he gives us a cup of blessings which we can drink and enjoy. That, that's the gospel. That's, that's what Jesus did. That's, that's what it says right here in verse 32. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up. For us all. Now in context, of course, that's all who believe. This is not all everybody. This is all who believe. Because those who don't believe don't get this exchange. Those who don't believe still have the wrath that they have to drink. And I just say this. It's all because of God's kindness. Not sparing his son, but giving him up for us all. I can't help but to think of Abraham. And his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Genesis 22, the Lord said, Abraham! Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. What a hard request. Here's the miracle baby. The baby that Abraham had had longed for. The son of old age. And God said, offer him as a sacrifice. He is unreplaceable. It's not like we can just have a bunch more children. It's not. I mean, every every child is precious, of course, but this one of anyone was most precious. But if God said it, he trusted the Lord, feared the Lord. And so he was willing. Three days of travel, they came to a place. Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. He was right there on the precipice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord stopped saying, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham didn't know it was a test. But it was a test. It was a test of Abraham's love for God. It was a test for Abraham's fear for God to see whether he would obey or not. And not withholding his son was a demonstration, really, of his faith. So, so in, in some regards, there's where the, the parallel lies. Right? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, that's showing something. When, when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, it demonstrated his, his faith, his fear of God. And, and, and as God didn't spare his own son, it demonstrates God's great love for us. It, it demonstrates his commitment to us. It's a demonstration of his care for us. It's a demonstration of his grace to us. All of that is, is all tied up in God not sparing his own son for us, but giving him up for us all. And then the, the question rightfully comes, if God did that with Jesus for us, Not stopping and finding a ram, but continuing 
in giving up his son. And that's a test, but it's a demonstration to us. If God did that, then how will God not also with him graciously give us all things? The answer is, of course he will. Of course he will. If he gave us Jesus, he will give us all things. So think about John 3.16 in light of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life but shall have all things. Not only everlasting life but, but all things. Romans 8.32 kind of extends this promise. Not just, okay, you just get eternal life. But it's, it's beyond that. Um, because eternal life in and of itself isn't, isn't so good. Um, my son and I have been reading some classic picture book commentaries, picture whatever, great classics. And uh, we just finished reading this week um, Gulliver's Travels. And it tells of Lemuel Gulliver's Travels, different worlds. Of course, you're familiar with Lilliput, um, where he's a giant. But also Brobdignag, where he's a midget amidst all these things. And he goes to the third land. I forget what it's called. But it's a land of intellects. And he goes in, even into this one place. And we saw this in the movie right afterwards we, we looked at it. And uh, he goes in this land of intellects. And there's some people who just think. Kind of they're so heady that they're, they're not even practical. And, and there's some who have eternal life, but they're blind. And say, so all you do is just drink this cup and you can have eternal life as well. And he, he turned it down because he didn't want eternal life of blindness. It was, yeah, there was bliss. But there was some blindness there. And what Jesus is talking about, about this eternal life, is combined with his all things. I mean, this, all, this is a great eternal life. Of course, we know that. You probably didn't think of a bad eternal life ever, right? But Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly, and this is good. But this is what the all things here. God gave his son. What else would he not give? He wouldn't. Everything he'll, he'll give to us. Now, it's, it's difficult to know here exactly what the all things are. Um, some might think it's just the spiritual blessings, Talked about in Ephesians 1, like adoption and redemption and forgiveness, that, that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But that, that could be. But do all things extend even to physical blessings? Is he talking about the all things in eternity? Is he, is he talking about time here? I don't know. But, but enough of what I, I do know is this. If you need it, God will give it. If you need it, God will give it. He has resources. He's demonstrated his commitment in sending his son. And when you need it, help will come. A little bit like Lucy's horn, the Chronicles of Narnia. When you need it, you blow the horn and help will come. You may not see it, may not understand it, but he will give us all things. No good thing, Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And bring us back to the main point. I mean, this, this should make us feel secure. I mean, imagine being like Lucy and having the horn. <clears throat> Whatever trials you go to, when it gets really dark, you just blow the horn and rescue comes. Yvonne, I've been uh, thinking, dreaming about hiking a long distance trail, the Pacific Trust, Crest Trail. I have no idea how or if or wherever that, that could happen. But oftentimes those, those who go take along this, this beacon or this, this button or, what, or whatever. I don't even forget the name of it. I don't even know what it is. But so that they're walking along, if ever they get into trouble, and people, whatever, out in the sea they have it as well. It's a button that they can push, and help will come. You push that button, and you give it some time, 15 minutes, hour, two, three hours later, you're going to hear, you're going to hear helicopters coming and looking for you, because somehow you're in trouble. 
And so likewise, when God gives us all things, that, that should give us a security, right? You have one of those things, you could go any place. I mean, you can go way in the outer bunk and with no help at all, knowing that if I'm really in trouble, break my leg, I'm okay. God giving us all things should make us feel secure. It's like the Marine who goes in the battle knowing he's got backup. He faced his enemy, and if he finds that, you know what, the enemy is too strong, stronger than what we anticipated, he just calls for backup, he's got more. Think about how much confidence that gives you going into battle, knowing that you can not only go into battle, but you have your whole squadron behind you able to come in as reinforcement. That's what we're talking about here. God will give us all things. Or it's like the student who takes an open book test. If you face a question you don't know, you just look at your cheat sheet or you look at your book and you, you can look it up. It's okay. There's tremendous security that comes when you have your, your book along with you. It's like the general contractor who's building the house for the billionaire. The finances, not an issue. Just make it happen. Think about the security then the contractor has. It's not like, oh, I've got to get that budget. I've got to get it quite right. No, he's just going to lavish everything in order to make that home right for when the, the billionaire moves in. It's going to be as nice as can be. And when it comes to our life, listen, right? God has promised all the resources that we need. And he has demonstrated the extent to which he will go in his commitment to us by sending his son on the cross to die for our sins. That's what verse 32 is talking about. And that ought to give us great security in the work of Christ. Let's move on. Fourth question. Who will bring a charge? That's my summary of verse 33. Here it is. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So when you answer the question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer? Nobody. It's interesting Paul doesn't answer that way. Paul answers with kind of another statement. It is God who justifies. Okay, let's... Let's think about that a, a bit, but let's, let's talk here but even about the question, right? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You say, who are God's elect? Well, these are those chosen from before the foundation of the world to come to saving faith. That, that's what elect means. Elect means chosen. These are the ones who God has foreknown. These are the ones in eternity past, right? This is Romans 8, 30, 29, and 30. This is where, where it kind of comes, the emphasis upon that, right? If someone is foreknown, he's the elect. And, and if you're an elect... Who's going to bring a charge to get you to glorify? Who's going to stop that? Who's going to be able to break that chain? And, and look at how he answers. He says that God justifies. That God justifies. Notice here, right? Justification is what? It's part of the chain. It's that fourth chain. So the God is the one. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect to start on the left? Well, see, God is the one who justifies. He's the one right there with the, the chain link. He's not going to break that chain. You're part of that chain. Well, nobody can bring a charge against God's elect, but you know what? People may try. So the picture here is the courtroom. So picture with me, right? God is presiding as judge and jury. And one of the elect is on the stand. And others are coming to accuse. <clears throat> and the accusations of guilt fly against the elect. But none of them stick. Because here's why, right? An accusation comes against the elect. Says, well, what do you think about that judge? Guilty. And the judge says, you know, you're right. His guilt is clear and evident, no doubt. But this soul has been purchased by the blood of my son. I have justified him and that charge won't stand. Next. And then another one comes along and, and, and brings this other explanation, this accusation, which is made 
explained and demonstrated and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, guilt is established. And again, the judge says, good job. You've done a, a, a good job to prove your case. This soul is guilty exactly like you have described. But you have forgotten that I've justified him. That, that the sin he has, that you've accused him of, has already been punished by the blood of my son. I cannot punish this soul because that punishment has been... This soul goes free. Next, and as more and more and more accusations come, the judge will never convict the elect because they've trusted in the work of Christ. We have peace with God through faith. Our, our, our peace comes through faith. It's believing in Him. And the elect believe. That's what it means. God has justified them through faith. Yes, we are guilty. But believing in the work of Christ brings peace with the judge. Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Our faith with God, God justifies us, and therefore we have peace. And the elect who's sitting there being accused is at peace with God. I don't care who else comes and accuses. No accusation will stick. And I just say, right, we get back to Paul's main point. The work of Christ, we are secure, right? We're secure in the fact that Jesus died for our sins. That's exactly what Paul is, is getting at. Okay, last verse. And then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper this morning. Who will condemn? Verse 34 says this. It says, who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the answer, who is there to condemn? Who do you say? Nobody. But Paul doesn't say nobody. It's interesting when he says, right, who, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, God justifies. Who's to condemn? And then he points to Jesus. He doesn't say nobody's going to be there. He's going to any condemnation that comes. The work of Christ is sufficient to solve that condemnation, that judgment for any accusation that comes. And verse 34, we, again, we see the courtroom, but our, our picture of the courtroom is expanded a little bit. See, God is still the judge. And uh, uh, because of the work of Christ, he will not condemn his elect. Look at the last verse, last half. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is all about the work of Christ. That's why my message is entitled secure in the work of christ because verse 34 includes his past work where he died for our sins according to scripture it includes his miraculous work through the resurrection where he validated all that he said and demonstrated that he indeed has the power over death and it also includes his present work jesus is at the right hand of god interceding for us now often when we think about the work of christ we just think about oh what he did but actually, there's an element here to what he is doing that helps us and why we are secure as well. And so at this point, take the courtroom scene, enlarge it, right? We still have God the judge presiding as judge and jury. One of the elect on the stand, others coming to accuse. But now we have a new picture here. We have, in light of his present work, we have our defense attorney not sitting out there at the table like they do in courtroom scenes, right? You've got the defendant and the prosecutor out there like this, okay? This time we got the prosecutor and the defendant, though, is sitting right at the right hand of the judge. It's kind of like, that's not quite fair. I mean, it's not like an equal hearing. It's like 
Jesus is the right, and they're related. So the defense attorney is related and has got his ear and is sort of right there with the judge. And so when the accusation of guilt comes and it's all laid out and before even the judge can can make his verdict, Jesus whispers in the ear, maybe doesn't whisper, maybe proclaims. He says, he says to the father, I died for this one. And God says, well, can't uh, condemn that one. Next. And Jesus says, I died for this one. 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 And over and over, he's interceding. He is pleading our case. And there's no way that God, the judge, will condemn because Jesus reminds them, reminds him, not like God needs reminding, but that's intercession, right? Is pleading for us. I died for him on the cross. And that prohibits condemnation. And this is Romans 8.1 in action. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because our Savior has the ear of the judge. He can't condemn because of the work of the Son on our behalf. And that's why we are secure in the work of Christ. And I say again, far more secure than any president is in the hands of the Secret Service. I don't care how much they spend. This chain link will never be broken. We are secure in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and really, that's where we go to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the work of Christ. We remember how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We remember how He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And, and in that sense, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to remember. Remember on that, that last supper, that That last time when he was there, he took the bread to represent his body and he took the cup to represent his blood, both representing his death. His body would be crushed. His blood would be poured out as a sacrifice for our our sins. And that's what we remember here this this day we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we ought to examine ourselves. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat to the bread and drink of the cup. So there's a time just want you to encourage you to so bow your head with me. Examine yourself. Are you really trusting in the work of Christ? That's the only place that eternal security can be found when you are there. Resting and relying upon the work of another. We don't take the Lord's Supper because we're sinless. We don't, we don't eat the bread or drink of the cup because we have it all together. And in fact, really, we have it because we know that we don't have it together and we hate it. <clears throat> there are plenty who know they don't have it together, but that's okay with them. But it's for us who knows that things aren't right, who knows that we are are sinful and that we need God's grace and mercy. And that we have trusted in that mercy and grace at the the foot of the cross. And so this morning, if you've believed and trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to celebrate the supper with us. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, or if you're here this morning and you find yourself just not not right, harboring the sin, not, not hating it, I encourage you to repent right now. But if not, I just encourage you even just let the cup and bread pass. Far better to let it pass than it is to eat and drink judgment on yourself. The only way to um, 
get rid of the judgments through faith in Christ. It's not by eating and drinking this cup and this bread. Just spend some time even before the Lord, just looking at your life, confessing your sin. And Father, I would pray, God, as we think and reflect upon the death of your son, I pray in some regards this would be a, a joyous time as we remember our, our, our salvation in Jesus, and yet a somber time because we remember what it, it took for him. It took his death, which he bore the wrath that our sins deserved. God, but it is that very death, the work of Christ, that gives us security and confidence in our relationship with you. And so, God, I pray, God, that you would show great grace, you would show great favor to us. Help us now, and to celebrate this in remembrance of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.